Welcome. I'm Lauren Ash, and you're listening to the Black Girl in Ohm podcast. Black Girl in Ohm exists to hold and catalyze healing within Black women around the world on their unique journeys towards wholeness. We support the necessary transformation, spiritual awakening, consciousness shifts, and intergenerational healing occurring within the diaspora. This podcast is a warm embrace, soothing realness, and conscious girl talk. Come into conversation with me and our spirit-centered guests. Let the journey begin. Hey y'all, so on today's episode, I am so grateful to have a friend of mine in the studio, Mecca Ali. She is such an amazing light in so many ways. One of my first friends in Chicago when I moved to Chicago in 2014. And she is an all-around phenomenal, multifaceted woman. She's a Chicago-based podcaster. You may be familiar with her from the Identity Politics podcast. She and my other friend, Iklas Salim, feature new stories and perspectives about race, gender, and Muslim life in America. And she's also the president of the board of directors at the Muslim anti-racism collaborative so so grateful to have you in the studio I'm so excited to be here also I remember I met you the first day I was in Chicago wait okay let's zoom back (laughs) please tell me what happened no Iklas brought me to a party because I didn't know anybody and I think it was maybe Lisa's birthday or it was someone's birthday yes wait in Rogers Park yes I vividly remember this now. That was like my very first day like living in Chicago. And then I think (laughs) either the next day or the week after, you asked if we wanted to be a part of like one of your first yoga classes. Yeah. So we did that in the park. So it was like. I actually have a photo of (laughs) my first yoga class ever with you. I remember that. We were in a park north side somewhere and I curated a little SoundCloud (laughs) vibey playlist. And we were just, you know, downward dog and it was great. (laughs) So yeah, when I think of Chicago, I think of you because I literally met you like the very first day I got here. Beautiful. And you've had your own journey with Chicago. I know that you were here, you moved away you came back Mm -hmm. I'm back visiting right now so what more of an ideal like aligned place for us to chat than here yeah amazing so one of the things I wanted to start off with is your origin story I really really value how we as black women especially tell our stories I think we can get so caught up in gravitating towards someone else's life, right? Like, oh my God, that person has gone through this, gone through that. They've triumphed over this, they triumphed over that. Our own stories though have so much rich insight and wisdom that is really generative when we tell it and really powerful when we tell it. So can you give us a glimpse of your younger self, who you were and you know, knowing that she is still very much present within this room as well? Oh, man, that's an amazing question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. So a lot of people don't know that my origin story is based in a lot of fear. So as a child, I was terrified of everything. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of strangers, of the dark, of people talking to me. I actually had a really bad fear of death, and I thought every night before I went to sleep that I would die. Wow. But then I have three older sisters. My eldest sister is 10 years older than me. And so I was like, oh, well, you know, when I was like nine, if she's 19, maybe I'll make it to 19. And then when she was 20, I was like, oh, she's 20, then I can make it to 20. I was very scared of plants and the outdoors. Like, Mm. I don't really know what gave me all of these anxieties. So I always say like my greatest accomplishment in life is actually being like, oh, so 
socially adjusted, like well-adjusted adult human, because that was not always going to be true. And so to the extent that I have an origin story, it's really grounded in, quite frankly, my mom's patience. And she really continued to push me no matter how hard I screamed and cried. You know, she forced me to do public speaking. She forced me to do like team sports. When we went out to restaurants, she forced me to order the food. If I wanted to spend the night at a friend's house, she would be like, you have to call the parents and ask. Yes. And I would get so upset <laughs> to the point where I'd be like, no, I don't want to go anymore. Wow. But I think about that often because now I spend a lot of time using my voice and we have a show and I have a podcast and so many people I don't know recognize my voice but I think like my origin story is actually grounded in a lot of fear and anxiety about Mm. even using that voice wow thank you for sharing that I would never have guessed that like you said socially you know adjusted well-rounded person like relatively yeah (laughs) but it speaks so much to how we're always evolving right and what you said about your mother's patience shaping you tremendously I wholeheartedly relate to that. My mother's patience to this day encourages me to be a gentler, softer, more compassionate person. And I think so many black women are shaped in one way or another by our mothers, you know? So for you to be shaped in such a beautiful way from yours, wow. Wow. She's the best. (laughs) Shout out to your mother. (laughs) Um, Hopefully she's listening. (laughs) So who are you today then? We know that you're a podcaster. You have this phenomenal show that has been shouted out by so many amazing platforms, NPR, MTV, The Atlantic, etc. You have an amazing philanthropic role that serves as your nine to five. So you're supporting a community. Mm -hmm. And you certainly support a really powerful faith community that you're so connected to as well. But like, who are you? And how do your values inform who Mm -hmm. you are as well? Oh, man. So who am I? I think there are a few values that underpin everything that I do. One is that I think something happens to us when we're in isolation from each other that's very dangerous. And so I genuinely believe that collaboration is the way to solve a lot of the world's problems as well as a lot of just personal problems. Asking for help, figuring out who has strengths that are your weaknesses, um, bringing people together. My background is actually in conflict resolution. I have a bachelor's in peace and justice studies and a master's in conflict analysis and resolution. And so I've served as a peace teacher. I've served as a mediator. I've served as a grant manager at a foundation, and now I serve as kind of a, a philanthropic consultant. And really the thing that binds it all together is I help people work better with others and eliminate the barriers to working with others in order to solve their problems in a more collaborative, impactful, compassionate, efficient way. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of driven my career, but I also think it's even connected to the podcast because I find that in this moment where people of color are just so under attack, when you're used to being seen in a certain light, you can flatten yourself. Mm. And so Iklas and I had this annoyance and fear and concern that our community and young black women specifically within our community were beginning to view themselves through the lens of CNN, through the lens of Fox News, through the lens of whatever presidential candidate was like 
shooting things off. Right. Um, and what happens when you completely flatten yourself and your self-perception is wrapped up in how others value you, then you lose yourself. Wow. And so the show is kind of this extension of this desire to bring people together because we shouldn't be isolated. And, and that's what they want us to do, right? They want us to be feeling like we're alone so that they can attack us and they can break us down. But we want to really complicate what it looks like when you bring black Muslim women together yes. um, and they have conversations about things that they care about, not things that the rest of the world says that they should be apologizing for, thinking about, talking about. Yes. So the thesis with our uh, podcast, <laughs> if I were to like make one up, sorry, Iklas, if this is wrong, <laughs> but I really do think we're trying to create a space outside of the white gaze for black Muslims. Yes. And I think we've done pretty well like with that. And you know, my nine to five work, you can't really resist the white gaze. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really required to interact with white people and their needs and how they see you in order to just advance when you're working in these fields. But for the podcast, especially because even the podcasting sector as a whole is still so white and male, yeah. like podcasts like Black Girl and Ohm, like podcasts like Identity Politics, like these are the exceptions, like definitely not the rules. So, so. creating spaces outside of the white gaze in order to self-actualize and yes. actually like define your values like for yourself, Absolutely. I think that's something that really drives me and is really important to me. I mean, everything you said, I feel like makes me think of the Audre Lorde quote about if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies and eaten alive. Mm -hmm. So whether it's you're shrinking yourself to accommodate or sometimes to use your language, you're flattening yourself to survive even, you know, mm -hmm. because I think it's wrong to simply say that we shouldn't do it because sometimes we have to do it so that we're literally going to not be killed at certain moments or harmed in one way or another, whether it's verbally or physically or what have you, but it can be literally our, our presence alone can serve as a threat to mm -hmm. right, the powers that be. So I think it's tremendous. That was a tremendous thesis statement, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure it's so resonant with what you all are doing on your podcast and how you show up in your life more broadly. Mm -hmm. We had such a phenomenal public conversation this past weekend. So we were both a part of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture's traveling series, God Talk. Mm -hmm. It was so beautiful, I think, to be a part of this dialogue that hasn't really been had in a public way in this particular way, right? So there were folk from various faith and religious affiliations. There were folk from no, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> religious affiliations present on the stage. And hearing you speak on the first panel, I was sad that we weren't on the same panel, but then I was glad because I was just able to be fully present <laughs> yeah. with everything you were we giving us. We got to us. watch each other. Yes. So nice. <laughs> and I really love how you spoke about God and how you conceive of God. And I'm wondering if you could go into that with us today. Sure. Um, so for context, someone in the audience asked, what is God? Just, you know, a very small question. Casual. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can try to answer that. But embarrassingly, my answer is actually inspired by a specific scene in Lion King. <laughs> yes. So, you know, after Simba, like, goes to that elephant graveyard, he gets in trouble. Yep. And then Mufasa comes and takes him, and they're laying on the, the grass and yes. looking up at the stars. Yes. And he explains what the circle of life is. He says, you know, up there, those are the kings that lived before us. 
And Simba's asking all of his questions, and he's like, you know, we eat antelope, and then when we die, we go into the ground, and the grass grows from us. Yes. And then the antelopes eat the grass, and that is the circle of life. And yes. I remember when I was little, like I was like, oh my god, like that's so amazing. But essentially, how I conceive of God is that every single reality, like on this earth, was created with intention, Absolutely. and that there is a single divine force that unites us all in a like cosmic balance. Yes. And part of religion and whatever religious tradition that you follow is trying to honor that cosmic balance, both externally and within yourself. And so I think of God as the intention with which we were all created and how that all interlinks into a greater, so to speak, circle of life. <laughs> it's beautiful though, it's so beautiful. I mean, that resonates with me so much because I am someone who, as much as possible, tries to live a life of intention. So to me, it is always a co-creation with the divine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because if I'm living a life of intention and God is intention, we yeah. in this together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, so I don't come from a Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't have a huge frame of reference as thinking of God in like a physical presence, yeah. as a physical being. And so in the Islamic tradition, like we do conceive of God as genderless, as, you know, like doesn't have a body, doesn't mm -hmm. have a shape or form, kind mm -hmm. of is everywhere, nowhere at the same time. Right. And so this idea that God is both something that exists above us, within us, and around us is yeah. just like, that's the only thing that's ever made sense to me. Mm. Um, that's just the way I've understood God like as a force mm -hmm. rather than as like a body itself. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that perspective. I mean, I'm at this place in my life where I'm just realizing how much of a seeker I am. You know, I did grow up within a very traditional Christian framework and went to church every Sunday and then some. My school that I attended for the majority of my life was also Christian. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until my, I think, senior year of college, yeah, where I took a theology class that was rooted in theologies of justice and peace. Mm -hmm. So we studied all of the main world religions through the lens of how much does this religion promote justice and peace in the world? And so, you know, through the various aspects of what makes up a religion, so everything from the texts to the rituals, what have you. And that was such a beautiful moment, I think, of awakening for me around understanding how many different, <laughs> you know, conceptions of God that there are, how various texts to me are in conversation with each other rather than mm -hmm. I think what most folk would would have us think that things are diametrically opposed it's like nah like there's so yeah. many threads of similarity and I think that's such a beautiful thing hey y'all Lauren here I am swooping in with a special note about today's episode sponsor, Organifi. If you've been looking to incorporate superfoods into your everyday lifestyle, I highly recommend this plant-based nutritional solution to allowing us to be more supported and at ease and feeling good in our bodies. Their red juice is something that I'm currently loving. Maybe I've spoken to this in the show before, I'm not quite sure, but I cannot do caffeine. 
mean. <laughs> but that being said, I actually do need a lot of support to maintain my energy throughout the day. Organifi Red Juice is great because it has zero caffeine, but it is set up with potent adaptogens, antioxidants, and even a clinical dose of cordyceps, which is an amazing supportive mushroom to support my energy throughout the day. It tastes like berries. It's really great. All you have to do is pour it into plain water. There's no need for a blender, although you can add it to smoothies. And not only does it help support your energy, it can even feel like your energy has increased so that you can get what you need to get done in the day done. I really, really love the fact that all Organifi products are USDA organic, dairy-free, vegan, non-GMO, and 100% organic whole food. If you're interested in trying their red juice or any other Organifi products, head over to Organifi.com slash Black Girl and Ohm. Again, Organifi.com slash Black Girl and Ohm. And guess what, y'all? You get 20% off. If you give it a try, let us assist in I'm really interested in having more conversations about spirituality and faith and how our spiritual practices and journey relate to our well-being. Mm -hmm. So for you, how do you see holistic wellness and your personal development relating to your faith beliefs? Oh, yes. I love, love talking about this. Honestly, I feel like everything that I do to be well is inspired by my faith tradition. Love it. And I think there was a period where that was not the case. And I was searching, you know, I was doing Zumba. I was, you know, like doing vision boards and like all of those things are great too. And I still do a lot of those things. But I was searching for community and searching for a way to be my authentic self in all of these, you know, scattered places. Mm. And it took a while. I think it was specifically some report came out and it was several years ago. And, you know, I click on all of these clickbaity articles, but it was like, <laughs> want to know like the secret to a better like balanced life or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, absolutely. So I clicked on it and it was talking about the power of like sitting in stillness and reflection and meditation like multiple times per day and it was yes. like you know recommended 3 to 5 times a day even if it's just for 5 minutes and i was like oh that's a good idea and then i paused and i was like i'm supposed to pray 5 times a day like as a muslim yeah. and so that actually flipped a light switch for me because mm. I think when you grow up, you're taught the do's and don'ts, right? Yes. Like you're taught, this is what it means to be a good Muslim. This is what it means to be a good Christian, especially yes. if you're a girl. Yes. That actually manifests itself in a lot of control mm -hmm. um, and a lot of limitations on mm -hmm. yourself and your perception of yourself. And so I had to go through this phase where I was figuring out what does it mean to find liberation in these things? Beautiful. And so that was a moment for me where I was like, oh my God, I wonder, like, is there divine wisdom and the things that I am told to do? And am I told to do them because they are good for me? Mm. Not just because I'm supposed to, mm -hmm. but because like it will actually help me live a fuller, happier life. It will help me access like the depth of my humanity in a way that I might not otherwise be able to. Yes. And so I came to the same realization with fasting when I went from this like grumpy thing that I did. <laughs> and of course now intermittent fasting is like so popular, right? Yes. But growing up in high school and college, it was not at all popular if you aren't Muslim or of some other faith traditions that practice fasting. Right. That was not just like a mainstream thing that people did. And right. I had 
bosses. I had colleagues. I had people tell me that I was like imposing harm upon myself, that they felt bad for me. And all of a sudden, this conversation changed about like all of the benefits of, you know, (laughs) limiting your caloric intake and like the intentionality and what it does for your mood and your body and all of these things. And so fasting became like a very spiritual practice for me where I felt the act of fasting made me choose my words more wisely because I'm resting. The act of fasting made me choose my actions more intentionally because I was tired. The act of fasting made me more aware of the impacts of what I was putting in my body because I was putting fewer things in my body. So if I was hungry and had a slice of pizza, I would feel that later. Exactly. If I was hungry and had a smoothie, that would have a completely different reaction. And so I was searching for wellness outside of my faith and I found like piecemeal ways to I'd say find short-term benefit, but mm-hmm. you know, everything. I would journal for three months and then I couldn't do it anymore. I'd get mm-hmm. bored. I would do yoga for a few months and then I'd get bored and I couldn't do it anymore. But the single sustaining force in my life, like for the most years, has been the inspiration that I draw from the things that my faith tells me to yes. do and actually finding the meaning and the wisdom in those things. That is so beautiful. And I think it's necessary to come into that realization on your own, you know? Absolutely. Um, that critical engagement with what you've been taught that allows you to either lean further into or away from. Yeah, and I've done both. Yes, (laughs) yes. You gotta do both. And could you speak to that? Because I think sometimes there is this fear, regardless of your faith tradition, right? I certainly started to notice the fear that I had when I, for the first time, started to distance myself from Christianity Mm -hmm. because the questions that I was coming up with around my own engagement with it were bringing about a lot more questions, really. (laughs) And I was like, let me just press pause here and sit in the pause and see what that pause brings me to. And it brought me to actually a great deepening into my own beliefs around who God actually is to me and what I actually believe that I'm so grateful for. But it can be scary at first. It is very scary. I think it's scary because it's like, you think you're in or out, right? And there are some communities where that's true, Mm -hmm. that if you ask too many questions, you're absolutely out. And I don't want to minimize that. But I think that God is more expansive than that and more nuanced than that. And again, I believe we're created with intention. The fact that we are created with the ability to ask questions is because we are supposed to ask questions. We are not supposed to try and bend and stretch ourselves into a structure that doesn't actually meet our needs. Mm. And so for me, it was really important for me to have space to choose Islam for myself and to choose it every day. Mm. And I would say that there was a stretch, probably like beginning of college, I'd say, what do I call my lost years? 2006 <laughs> to 2012. <laughs> I have like a specific time frame, like 2006 to 2012 spiritually were my lost years. And it's because I was developing my identity in other ways. Mm. I was developing my identity as a woman, as a black woman. I was really a student of feminism, of Africana studies. Yes. I was in college. Mm-hmm. So I was figuring out what it means to live on my own. What do I value when I'm not around my parents or my community? Yeah. You know, who do I want to surround myself with? Who do I want to be? What do I want to do professionally? Yeah. Those are all really important questions. Absolutely. And it was necessary for me to press pause on my faith development in order to understand what else was out there mm-hmm. and to access different parts of myself. And, you know, now, seven years later, 
I still think about all of those things, but I now seek inspiration and information first. Like, what does my faith have to say about this mm. before I go outside to anything else? So I, I think the, the chance to step away and reset and ask questions. And I'd say the most important thing is finding people that you can ask questions with. Because Community. when I went up to my imam or something and was like, I don't really know about this. Like that might not have worked out so well, but I found a group of young seekers when I first moved to DC in 2012 that were asking themselves similar questions. And it was an incredibly safe space, just gathered in my now husband actually's living room. Yes. And it was a bunch of young people in their early to mid twenties, just being like, what does it mean to actually live these faith values? And like, do I believe in all of them? Or right. if not, why not? If so, why? Like what's hard for us? Right. And that space where it was a bunch of people asking a bunch of questions and criticizing the crap out of the faith that wow. they had chosen, wow. that ultimately is what brought me closer mm. to Islam. That's beautiful. Community is so essential and finding the community that you are aligned with. Um, when I was in college, I actually experienced a lot of harm within the community. It was like a, an on-campus you know, community of black Christians that would gather. And I actually experienced harm there that led me mm -hmm. to also distance myself from yep. it. But that was also necessary. Like who I am now is realizing that I actually was able to like transmute that yeah. into something that brought me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things happen with purpose if we lean into that purpose. And it's really profound just reflecting on the experiences in our, I think, 20s, especially because we're both in our early 30s now, yeah. that at the time maybe felt like, what is this for? <laughs> Yeah. That we now realize, oh, this was all divine. Absolutely. I mm -hmm. think learning what you don't like tells you even more about your values than yes. learning what you like. And yes. I had the exact same experience in college. I tried yes. to join the Muslim Student Association. <laughs> I was the only black girl in there. It was a mess. And wow. I was like, you know what? I'm out. Like, wow. this is not a cultural space where I feel seen or honored or valued. Yes. And so I leaned into my blackness heavily and mm. in valuing myself mm. because I felt like that might have been a space where that was that would have threatened my self-perception right. and I somehow at right. 17 you know yeah. had the wisdom to remove myself from that thank you so much for drawing attention to a direction I wanted to head in this conversation um, you mentioned that when you joined or attempted to join the Muslim Student Association you were the only black woman mm -hmm. the black person yeah okay it's my understanding that a quarter of Muslims in the United States are black mm -hmm. right so there's ways in which black Muslims in the United States face discrimination and oppression, yes. right? So when I was thinking about today's conversation and you mentioned that you studied feminism in college, um, that was a lot of my focus when I was a graduate student. I studied a lot of black feminism as well. And, you know, stumbling into the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and mm -hmm. learning about intersectionality, like for real, for real, I was like, wow, this is such a powerful framework yeah. and prism of understanding for things that I and my people face every day. You know, it's not just I'm experiencing this because I'm a woman or I'm experiencing in this because I'm black or I'm experiencing this because of XYZ. It's like all of these things yeah. all at once. I don't wake up to say I'm going to be a woman. I'm just right. going to focus on the woman. Stuff. Right. Like that's not how it works. Right. <laughs> right. And so for you, how have you seen the various ways of your intersecting identities, particularly being black woman and Muslim play out in, I don't know, like how is it now? How was it under four or five? <laughs> 
Yeah. How was it during Oof. Obama? Like, these are big questions. But I think, again, going back to what I shared at the very beginning, us telling our stories is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's so healing. And it's so important. Yeah. So, For sure. So I think I am at peace with my identities. And I have gone through a healing process. And now I try and make space for others to find peace and beauty and all the many, many things that they are and understand that they are more than their struggles. They are more than what people say that they are. Yes. Um, and that there is an inherent beauty in their history and their culture and their hair and their skin, you know, all of that. Uh, I left DC for a reason. Mm-hmm. When I lived in DC between 2016 and 2018, I was in the worst like mental state that I had been like in my life. Mm-hmm. I lived there during the presidential campaign. Wow. I had several nearly violent encounters with people on the street. It got to the point where I actually didn't leave my neighborhood. Like I worked a mile away from my apartment. Yeah. So and then my grocery store was down the street, my gym, and a lot of my friends happened to live in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it got to the point where I had cultivated a world in which like there was safety but it was inside of this larger, like very hostile environment yes. in which people felt really fine to move into a historically black city yeah. and to say, we're going to we're going to make this something different and something that it's not. Wow. I think that it has always been a challenge. And I think black Muslims have been at the forefront of resistance, have been the target of surveillance, have been assassinated. You know, black Muslims have had their very specific struggle throughout the course of American history, but our blackness is always at the forefront and people who don't appreciate intersectionality or yes. appreciate that we contain multitudes will erase other things. Absolutely. So I've heard people talk about Muhammad Ali and what he did for black people and they'll never mention that he was Muslim. I've heard people talk about, oh, the autobiography of Malcolm X changed my life without acknowledging that a lot of his conclusions were grounded in his Islamic faith. Right. Um, and I think that happens within the Muslim community as well and how we talk about, oh, after 9-11, things got really tough for Muslims in this country. Mm. And it's like, have you not read American history? Like, right. Do you not know the ways in which black Muslims communities have been targeted but it's like oh no that's that's because you guys were black not because right, you were muslim right and it's like well who's to say and also that's not okay <laughs> but there's this thing that is happening where muslim issues are being defined and muslimness is being defined as something that's inherently foreign to this country it's something that's immigrated to this country and that's so, on purpose. And when you hear about, yeah, exactly, that's on purpose. It's this foreign threat that we have to annihilate. And I think even the Muslim community has grabbed onto that and be like, mm. we're all immigrants, we're all Americans, mm. you know, we're all like waving our flags. And I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Muslims have been here before this country even was a country. Right. Like Muslims predate on this land, the United States of America, <laughs> as it's currently known. And those wow. Muslims that were brought here were black. Yes. And so Muslims likely built the White House. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it's just this idea that we're somehow outside of the framework of what it means to be Muslim and our intersectionality, like, is erased in that process. It's something that's very frustrating to me, and I try to be really intentional about. And that's what our podcast does, too, is we say it's called identity politics because we're like... American Muslims are actually the most diverse faith community in the country um, and the most diverse Muslim community in the world. Mm. There's no majority race. Mm -hmm. We speak multitude of languages. We come from a lot of different countries and backgrounds. And so I always say, you know, if we were to solve diversity problems and figure this whole thing out within the Muslim community, 
we could actually help a lot of people more broadly in the yes. country like figure this out because we're you know decades yes. ahead of where the United States is demographically. Yes. So I think on the podcast we recognize that our communities are diverse and the way in which we experience what it means to be Muslim in this country is based on a multitude of identities. And so me being an able-bodied hetero, black Muslim mm -hmm. woman, mm -hmm. you know, who's educated, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That influences how I experience my Muslim life. Yes. Someone whose parents are from India, who grew up in the suburbs, mm -hmm. who's a doctor, um, whose family is being impacted by some of the policies, the immigration policies that are being put forth, that impacts their perception of what it means to be Muslim in America. And right. so our show is all of these things are what it is, and yes. we're going to actually name what we're talking about. Yes. So we're not just like, oh, no, Muslims, there's a scarcity of attention on us, so we have to choose our top three issues yes. collectively. Yes. And it's going to be the Muslim ban, yes. and it's going to be, and it's like, no, we care about education, we care about mass incarceration, we yes. care about health care, we care about all the same things that yes. people just trying to survive here do. Like, mm. Yes, Muslims are your doctors and engineers, but they're also your taxi drivers. They're also your janitors, yes. they're your teachers. Like we really, any issue that is facing an American today mm -hmm. is facing Muslims. So the intersectionality question is a big one because I think it really hits on sort of an identity crisis that American Muslims are facing right now that yes. was imposed upon us. Yes. And I love that you drew attention to the history of Muslim contributions, but also mm -hmm. like resistance within this nation. That's yeah. certainly not something that I ever was taught, you know, and as I mentioned before, I really identify now as a spiritual seeker and really like seeking wisdom from different traditions mm -hmm. because I just feel like there's so much life, you know, for me in that. And when I was prepping for this conversation today, I ran across um, an article in Medium that I'll make sure is linked in the notes where it was schooling me on a lot of the uprisings, both within the Americas, but also in Haiti and in Brazil and all these slave rebellions that happened that directly influenced and led to like fears of black Muslims. But it's like mm -hmm. fear because, yeah, you better be afraid because <laughs> they're literally up here doing the necessary work yeah. in order to like say F you to all this systemic oppression that y'all are putting up. So I was just like, wow. I have a lot to learn. It's a legacy, girl. It's all up <laughs> in our history. And it's like, we're not taught for a reason. Yes. You know? And it's yes. like, there's this, I call it a manufactured scarcity mm. that like we can only pay attention to so much. So let's, mm. what's the purest version of yes. our history that we can teach? And yes. it's like, you can teach about slave rebellions and have a little star and say, P.S. Right. There's a, a community that was disproportionately represented and leading these and the impact disproportionately affected them, et cetera. But I think, you know, we all play this game within the black community and outside of it. Of we do. Trying to take credit yeah. for whatever progress we think has happened. <laughs> when again, like it's all collaborative. Yes. It's all like involved so many different people like passing the baton to each other. Yes. And what would we gain a lot from yeah. recognizing <laughs> that and owning that? Wow. So I'm curious for you is... And maybe it's both, so this maybe is not the right question to ask, but do you step into understandings of Islam as a religion or a spiritual tradition? And like, Ooh, how? I like that question so much. Okay, good. Um, I think it's a balance. Mm -hmm. um, I think of it in both ways. When I was younger, my conception of it was just as a religion. And by that, I mean something that's textual, something that has 
its own code of ethics and mm -hmm. conduct, something that has its own framework about like what the world is and what you have to believe to mm -hmm. be a part of that faith tradition. I really did see it as a list of do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. Like like you study for a degree. Like I felt right. like I was like getting my degree in Islamic studies. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so that's how I thought about it for a long time. Then in my seeking phase, you know, I'll go through the lost years, I go and find this community of other seekers, it became really spiritual for me. And I started mm -hmm. to ask myself the question, you know, so much of what I've been taught has been grounded in fear, fear of punishment, mm -hmm. fear of the consequences. Yep. But what would it mean to engage with this religion from a place of love, Girl. from a place of fulfillment, yes. from a place of just like a soul connection and a sense of purpose yes. and a sense that this is something that feeds me. And yes. I am not gonna let any man, mm -hmm. I am not gonna let anyone from within this community or outside of this community mm -hmm. get in the way of my relationship with God. Beautiful. And that was a turning point for me. And so I think since then, I try and maintain a balance. I try and maintain a balance of the soul work, the heart work. And in Islam, there's a very robust Sufi tradition, mm -hmm. sort of the chanting, the spirituality, mm -hmm. like that is a huge, huge part of like what millions of Muslims do across the globe. But I think you mostly hear about the ritualistic traditions. But as I was describing earlier, I've come to kind of marry the two, that uh -huh. I can like do the spiritual soul work in the routines. Mm -hmm. And that has felt really nice for me. Yeah. It's become not as much of a scary thing that I'm trying to like be perfect at. Right. In fact, I define the religious obligations. I, my understanding of Islam, and this may not be true, I think of Islam as a growth mindset religion mm -hmm. and that you always have an opportunity to grow and you get points for trying. It is not about being perfect. <laughs> yes. It's about self-awareness. Yes. And it's about a desire for something more for yourself. That's beautiful. And so I try and remember that when I like maybe miss a prayer or I curse when I'm fasting or <laughs> I lose my temper and just like, okay, I recognize that that happened. What am I going to do about it? Am I just going to be like, okay, whatever, that's me. I don't care. Yes. Am I going to shut down or am I going to lean into that and be like, well, why did I react this way? Yes. Maybe I should think about that a little bit more. Yes. Thank you for that. Really, thank you for that. Um, that speaks to the journey that you've been on that has allowed you to even come to that ultimate realization too. So thank you. So how long have you been involved with the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative? I, so it's so funny that you asked that. So when Muslim Arc launched back in 2014, mm -hmm. I was like one of the first, like I followed them. I was a member. Yeah. I was like, how can I get involved? Yeah. And I've been a huge fan of their work for the last five years. Okay. Um, but I joined the board formally back in 2018, so mm -hmm. about a year and a half ago. Okay. And I joined as president. That wasn't necessarily my intention when I got involved, yeah. um, but it's been definitely humbling and incredible to work alongside majority women, like yeah. amazing, like Muslim women of color. It's amazing. To tackle issues that are intersectional mm. as it relates to Islamophobia, racism, both within the Muslim community and outside of the Muslim community, yes. and calling ourselves to working better together with a greater understanding of each other. It's It's been amazing. That's amazing to hear, too, that it's so many women and mm -hmm. that you're the president, girl, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so what is one of the main initiatives that you all are focused on? Um, you know, I'm thinking of the political times that we mm -hmm. live in. We've already spoken to Islamophobia and how black Muslims are erased even within that. And so how are you focusing your efforts right now? Great question. So our tagline is education for liberation. And so at its heart, 
Muslim ARC is a human rights education organization, mm -hmm. and we focus a lot on trainings and workshops. We do that at organizations, we do that on college campuses, et cetera. And we try and expand people's understanding of what it means to be involved in anti-racism work, and that is grounded in an Islamic perspective. Mm -hmm. We also release a lot of articles, a lot of reports. We conduct independent research. I think Muslim ARC was the first organization to produce a study on American Muslim perceptions of race and experiences with racism. Mm. Um, and so that's something that we definitely tackle head on. And I think with the larger political context, we've also got engaged in sort of public discourse and collaborated with other organizations mm -hmm. to talk about the impacts of Islamophobia on our communities. But our specific framework is understanding Islamophobia as a the most recent manifestation of a larger system of white supremacy. Yes. And I think that's what a lot of other Muslim organizations don't, they're a little too scared to say. Mm. And we're like, no, this is white it. supremacy by another name. Yes. And the same way they committed genocide against the natives, the same way they enslaved Africans yes. and turned them into African Americans, yes. the same way that they're now stripping us of our citizenship, yes. of our rights, and telling us who we are. Yes. Like all of that is under the framework of white supremacy, and right. that's something that our organization is is very okay with naming and yes. trying to, to grapple with. And that's essential because if not y'all, who's going to say it? <laughs> yeah. Right? Exactly. So thank you for your work with that. I just thought it was important to highlight that for folk listening who want to do something to support because this is really, really urgent, especially in the times that we live in. Um, I think we'll land and we'll leave our listeners perhaps with your insights as to one way to invite divine God to show up more mm. in your life. So maybe this is rooted in a practice that you have. You know that expression, let go and let God? Mm -hmm. I think I thought I knew what that was until I actually did it. I think that one of the best ways to invite divine presence in your life is through self-awareness mm. and self-acceptance and curiosity about what comes next. Mm. Now, self-awareness doesn't mean self-judgment. I think we're all our toughest critics. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't mean you're letting yourself off the hook. Like, it's, a, it's an honest assessment. What am I good at? What am I still working on? What don't I want to work on? Because I, I am, I'm fine with the way that is. Right. If there's something that you're seeking in your life that you really, really want, it's recognizing that like there may be wisdom in not getting that opportunity. Mm. You may have just been steered away from something that ultimately would not have been good for you. And so I believe the best way to invite divine presence into your life is to start with having a healthy relationship with yourself and cultivating a relationship with yourself that is rooted and honesty and radical self-compassion. Yes. And it has to be both of those things. It has yes. to be, I'm not going to hide who I am from myself because you can't hide who you are from any sort of divine presence that you believe in. Like that divine presence knows who you are. Yes. So you have to learn who you are and what triggers you, what excites you, and pay attention to those sort of breadcrumbs and really trust that your own divine light will guide you to where you need to be. And even as things are sort of veering off course, knowing that whoever you are is enough to handle it. Yes. You will not be given a burden greater than you can bear. We oh, believe shit. that in Islam. You, yes. are, you will not be given a burden greater than you can bear. That doesn't mean that you won't face hardships. That doesn't mean you won't want to give up. Yes. But you have been given the tools that you need to succeed. 
And once you fully accept that, and once you fully accept that every detour in the road is a lesson, it's maybe an opportunity to access a depth of patience. Mm. It's maybe an opportunity to repair relationships with people that you previously cut out of your life. Every breakup, every firing. I have not talked to a single person that has gone through a hardship and not looked back and said, if that hadn't happened, this other thing wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that's what I would say to do to allow divine presence into your life. Really start to build your relationship and trust with yourself. Ashe, everything you said, <laughs> you saw me nodding my head the whole time. I had tears in my eyes. I felt like you were speaking to me right now. Thank you so much for your wisdom throughout this whole conversation. Thank you so much for the work that you do for our community. And thank you so much for all that you will do. I just see your journey right now is still, I think, the beginning. And you are a force to be reckoned with in so many ways. And I'm grateful to know you. Oh, Likewise. Thank you so much. This is such a dream come true to come on your show. And I'm completely in awe of who you are and what you've built and what (laughs) you're continuing to build. Like, thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. Uh, We're all so proud of you. (laughs) Thank you so much. So where can people, as I'm crying over here, (laughs) where can people stay in touch with you, Mecca? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Mecca. That's M-S-M-A-K-K-A-H. You can find my podcast, Identity Politics, anywhere you get your podcast. And you can also find us on identitypoliticspod.com. You can find out about Muslim Arc on muslimarc.org. Yeah, I think those are all the places that you can find me. Amazing. And if you have anything additional that comes to mind, share it with us and we'll make sure it gets up in the show notes. Will do. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you. I affirm that you discover this conversation in divine time and that you'll activate any of the insights that resonated with you powerfully moving forward. Now, at Black Girl and Home, we're all about gratitude, so special thanks to our audio engineer, India Jordan, for adding your magic, Khalid B for your original music, and thank you, yes you, for listening. <laughs> Y'all, Black Girl and Home is here for you. We're actively rewriting the narrative of what well-being looks like to ourselves and in our communities. To get more involved and learn more about us, head to blackgirlinohm.com and join our newsletter while you're at it. If you do, you'll get an exclusive and free download of a meditation led by yours truly for Black women and girls everywhere. Are you also deepening into your journey of wholeness and healing with us on social? Follow us at Black Girl in Ohm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. What we're about here is real sustained impact. If you're influenced by something that you heard on our podcast and want to support, you can make a contribution today by heading to blackgirlinohm.com slash support. All right, y'all, breathe easy.